You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Greetings and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is the sixth and final episode in our series on famed English explorer Francis Drake. Last time we had taken Drake from California to Asia and then back to England, completing his historic circumnavigation of the globe, a feat that had only been accomplished once before by Ferdinand Magellan and his crew. By attacking the Spanish on the western coast of the Americas, Drake had identified and exploited the weak underbelly of Spain's colonial empire. Drake had raided towns, captured and sunk ships, and seized a boatload of treasure, literally. He had come home to England in triumph. He was rich, as were all those who had invested in the venture. Also, Queen Elizabeth knighted Drake. He now had fame, fortune, and position. It was all that he had ever imagined. Today, we are going to cover the rest of Drake's life, which is quite an adventure. However, please know that there really isn't any exploration going on in this episode. But the events that we are going to cover, and Drake's participation, are crucial to the era, and we would miss out on so much of Drake's life if we glossed over them. In all of this, we will see the continuing growth of Drake as one of the pivotal figures of the Elizabethan era. Now, on with the show. So, Drake had returned from his voyage in 1580. He was famous, rich, and newly knighted. What to do next? Well, the first thing involved money. That meant investments, specifically real estate. At this time, nothing represented prosperity and power more than land. On his return to England, Drake bought a large manor house called Buckland Abbey near Devon, his birthplace. It was a huge estate, and it still stands today. Drake would gradually add other properties over the years, eventually becoming the third largest landlord in the city of Plymouth. The second thing to do was to dive into politics. Drake would become the mayor of Plymouth in 1581, as well as a member of Parliament. These were all great honors for Drake, and it was the kind of thing one would expect of a powerful and rich lord, and he played the part to the hilt. As a lord and mayor, he showed himself to be a pragmatic and relatively wise man. He donated to good causes, was considered a fair arbiter, and was generally seen as a decent guy. In Parliament, Drake earned a reputation as an eloquent and bold speaker, something he had learned from his father and had honed preaching to his men at sea. Acknowledging his expertise, he was generally assigned to committees regarding maritime affairs. All of this was Drake working his way up and into English society. Each step, wealth and fame and station, validated his new place in the social order. However, he would never entirely be accepted by the upper crust of English society. His fancy new clothes and flashy jewels did not hide his commoner accent or his rough manners. As a note, Drake's personality, his strong will, his immense confidence in himself, his pugnaciousness, his arrogance, would only grow as he became more powerful. He will clash with others and rarely back down or let up. Frankly, he's kind of a dick at times, but his personality will, for the most part, help him succeed in the coming years. So there we have it, fame, fortune, and stature. Drake had it all. He was about 40 years old at this time, and he could have rested on his laurels and retired to a life of comfort. But that was not the kind of man Francis Drake was. Despite all of his success, Drake's ambition, his religious zeal, his love for country, and his hatred for the Spanish and the Pope never waned. And this leads us to the third thing Francis Drake would get involved with, and that was way to strike at Philip, Spain, and the Pope. Drake's first chance came when King Henry of Portugal died in 1580, leaving no heir to the throne and no designated successor. 
King Philip II of Spain was one of the closest dynastic claimants to the Portuguese throne, and in November of that year, he asserted his claim by force when he invaded Portugal. The following year, Drake would get involved in a scheme to support another claimant to the throne, even going so far as to organize a fleet of eight warships and a thousand men to go to the Azores, where the claimant, a man named Don Antonio, had supporters. The intention was to encourage Portuguese resistance to Spanish rule and to use the Azores as a base to harass Spanish shipping and cut off the flow of silver from the New World to Spain. Well, the affair would collapse when funds ran short, and Philip warned Elizabeth that it would be war if the expedition sailed. Thus, the whole thing collapsed, and Drake would be left disappointed. At this same time, Drake would also back an expedition to the New World, but he would not participate in this affair. This particular expedition consisted of four ships, one of which would be captained by his cousin, 20-year-old John Drake, the same John Drake who had served on Goldenhine and had earned a gold chain for sighting the Spanish treasure ship off the coast of the Americas several years earlier. Well, that venture would be a failure. John Drake's vessel would be wrecked off the coast of South America, and no one would hear of him for years until it was learned that he had been captured and imprisoned by the Spanish. He would never return home. So, Drake was making money, getting involved in politics, and trying to poke the Spanish bear whenever possible. The latter, punching Philip in the nose, was going to take center stage as events in Europe brought Spain and England more and more into conflict. However, before that, I do want to mention one thing, and that is that Drake's wife, Mary, would die in January of 1583. We don't know the cause of her death, but the couple had no children, something that was a great disappointment to Drake. He would eventually remarry, this time to Elizabeth Sydenham, a young woman from a wealthy and influential family. It was a far cry from the humble origins of Drake and his first wife. The new marriage would further Drake's social standing amongst England's ruling class. Now, as I mentioned, the European political landscape was rapidly evolving, and things were not looking good for England. In the Netherlands, the leader of the Protestant cause, William of Orange, was assassinated in 1582, depriving the Protestants of the man who held them together. The Spanish would capture the cities of Brussels and Antwerp, and Spanish military might appeared insurmountable. In response, Queen Elizabeth would make the Netherlands an English protectorate, and an army, mostly of mercenaries, was put in the field. However, it was undermanned and underfinanced. Also, in France, things were not much better, as Catholics and Protestants were teetering on the brink of civil war. Thus, the French did not have the time or inclination to get involved in other conflicts. This left Elizabeth and England in a precarious situation. The war in the Netherlands was going badly, and France, a potential ally, was on the sidelines. Also, there was a large veteran Spanish force in the Netherlands, the Army of Flanders, just across the English Channel. Many argued that it was only a matter of time before Philip ordered them to invade. And one of those men was Francis Drake. Drake was convinced that Spain had designs on England, and he encouraged Elizabeth and other important government officials to go on the offensive against Philip. He argued that the best strategy was to cut off Philip's treasure from the Americas and hit the Spanish before they had any chance to get better organized. Well, the possibility of war seemed to be coming to fruition when, in May of 1585, Spain suddenly declared their ports off-limits to English vessels. Many English ships caught in Spanish ports were seized. Others were stripped of anything of value, including cannon and rigging. All of this pointed to the building of a great fleet, an armada, by the Spanish. War, a threat for so many years, was looming. Thus, in July of 1585, Queen Elizabeth unleashed her greatest weapon, Sir Francis Drake. With the royal commission in hand, Drake was ordered to raise a force and go and punch King Philip in the nose or kick him in the knee, or poke him in the eye, or whatever worked. 
Drake's plan was to gather a fleet and then sail to the Cape Verde Islands, which were a Spanish possession, and raid them. He would then go to the Caribbean, where he imagined raising an army of Cimarrones and overwhelming the Spanish colonies. This would turn off the spigot of Spanish silver flowing from the New World to Philip's coffers. Drake's fleet would be an enormous one. The budget was 60,000 English pounds, probably the most expensive naval force ever put into play by the small island nation. There would be between 20 and 25 vessels and around 2,000 men involved. In addition to Drake, it included some of the finest English mariners of the age, including Martin Frobisher, Richard Hawkins, and other prominent names. Now, I'm not going to go to all the details of this venture, because this is really Drake the Admiral and not Drake the Explorer, but still, we need to do some recaps. The Great Fleet would depart England on September 14th. After successfully conducting a raid on the coast of northwest Spain, Drake would go to the Canary Islands and then the Azores, looting and pillaging as he went. On the voyage to the Caribbean, a disease, likely typhus, would kill upwards of 300 men. Still, the fleet descended on Santo Domingo in January of 1586, seizing the city in just a single day. Part of the city would be burned before the Spanish paid a ransom of roughly 11,000 English pounds. It was not a great sum, as Santo Domingo was no longer a major city on the Spanish main. Still, the attack had struck terror into the Spanish as the legendary El Drake had returned. Drake next turned to Cartagena on the northern coast of modern-day Venezuela. It was one of the principal cities on the Spanish main. While smaller than Santo Domingo, it was better defended. And even more important, they were ready for Drake and his fleet. The English expedition arrived at Cartagena in February of 1586. While well defended from the sea, Cartagena was vulnerable by land. The English would deposit 1,000 men outside the city on the night of February 9th and proceed to breach the walls without much of a fight. The city's fortress would hold out a bit longer, but would surrender on February 11th. Cartagena was in Drake's hands. Only 28 men in the expedition had been killed or injured in the fighting. It was a stunning success. Per standard protocol, the English went about looting and pillaging. They would burn 250 homes and buildings before netting a ransom of almost 50,000 English pounds. So, here was Drake sitting pretty in the city of Cartagena, one of the crown jewels of the Spanish main. He considered making the city a permanent base, a place to strike the enemy anywhere in the region. Havana and Panama were prime targets. However, illness would again strike the fleet. More than 100 men would die, and hundreds more would get sick and be incapacitated. Dysentery was the likely cause. This left the fleet essentially at half strength. So, on advice of his officers, Drake decided it was time to return to England. The attacks had netted him enough cash to pay for the venture, but not much else. The truth is that large forces like Drake's were susceptible to disease and illness. Drake simply didn't have the strength to attack a place like Havana, a prize he would have relished. The fleet would depart in April of 1586, leaving the Spanish humiliated. Drake would stop in Cuba for supplies, then head north, toward Virginia. His goal was to drop off supplies to the colonists of the fledgling settlement of Roanoke, which had been established by Sir Walter Raleigh the previous year. It was the first English colony in North America. But first, Drake would, in May, stop at St. Augustine along the eastern coast of Florida. This Spanish settlement was the oldest in America. Drake would drive off the Spanish with ease and seize some money and artillery pieces and then finish it off by destroying the fort and the town. The fleet would continue on and reach Roanoke Colony on June 9th, finding the settlement in bad shape. There were about a 100 men, mostly soldiers. The colonists and supplies needed to support the settlement were late in arriving, and it was feared that they had been lost at sea. Drake offered to take these men back to England, and they would accept the offer, departing on June 18th. 
Ironically, the expected colonists would arrive shortly thereafter and find the settlement abandoned. Due to the upcoming war with Spain, no English relief ship would arrive at the colony until 1590, and by then, everyone was gone. Their fates are not known, but many suspect that they tried to reach some friendly natives in the area. The likelihood is that most were killed, and any survivors would have assimilated with the native peoples. Drake returned to England on July 27th, arriving at Portsmouth. He pronounced his mission a success, and people welcomed him to Hero. But financially, the expedition was roughly a wash. However, there is no question that Drake had succeeded in harassing the Spanish. Spain's credit was threatened by the venture, as banks feared the treasure fleet was in jeopardy because of men like Drake. In the end, Drake had humiliated the Spanish. This enraged Philip, something that no doubt thrilled Drake. In the wake of Drake's raid, the Caribbean bases of Spain would be fortified, but at a tremendous cost in men and money. However, despite all of Drake's efforts, the threat of a Spanish invasion of England was only growing. The Dutch were on the run in the region. It was only a matter of time before the Spanish forces would be able to turn their attention toward England. Also, the new Pope, Sixtus V, pledged one million crowns to support Philip once a Spanish army invaded England. There was a crusade-like atmosphere in Spain, despite the recent humiliations dealt to Philip's forces by Drake. With all of this happening, Francis Drake was convinced that the Spanish would come, and he was zealous in his opinions. To him, it was a clash biblical in nature, God, a.k.a. England, versus the Antichrist, Spain and the Pope. Drake wanted money, he wanted to build ships, he wanted to attack Spain, now. Yet Elizabeth hesitated. Her instincts were usually to play the middle ground, and despite all that had happened in the past few years, Spain and England technically never had declared war on each other. Thus, Elizabeth kept the reins on Drake. Then, in February 1587, Drake took aim at returning to the New World with yet another expedition, but the Queen wanted Drake and the men and ships closer to home. And it was here that Drake was finally given a commission to bring the fight directly to Spain. Elizabeth would authorize a new expedition to specifically harass Philip's ships coming to and from the Americas, as well as seize merchants traveling between Italy and Spain. It was a bold, preemptive strike. For this new expedition, Drake had four warships as well as 20 other support vessels. He departed on April 12, 1587. His expedition consisted of more than 3,000 men, the largest Drake had ever commanded. In late April, the English fleet would fall on the unprepared Spanish at Cadiz, where Drake had learned that the Spanish were assembling a great number of ships. The English would find 60 vessels in the harbor, most of them unarmed. He did not hesitate to attack. The few Spanish warships available to defend the port were quickly overwhelmed. Except for a few vessels that were seized, the English burned every ship that they could get their hands on. This included a massive 15-ton galleon. It is said that over 10,000 tons of shipping was destroyed that night. This action was called, appropriately, the singeing of the King of Spain's beard. Again, the Spanish were left dumbfounded and humiliated. Drake had sailed right up to her doorstep and had destroyed years of preparations. But the English admiral was not done. Drake now fully understood that the Spanish were coming to England. He had seen the preparations underway. The Armada was inevitable. He would write to Francis Walsingham, the Queen's secretary and spymaster, quote, Prepare in England strongly and mostly by sea. Stop him now and stop him ever. End quote. Drake and his men would capture and loot various towns and forts along the Spanish coast, destroying more than a hundred barks and caravels and fishing boats along the way. The English fleet next headed for Lisbon, where the Spanish were actively assembling their armada. Here he blocked the port and dared the Spanish to come out and fight him. However, nothing would happen. 
Most of the Spanish ships had no guns on them yet, and the crews had not been assembled. While Drake didn't dare sail into the heavily defended port, he had humiliated the Spanish yet again. Drake and his fleet next headed to the Azores, reaching the islands on June 8th. They would seize a Spanish carrack, the San Felipe, a personal ship of King Philip. The ship, which was larger than the largest three English ships combined, was loaded with goods, including pepper, cinnamon, cloves, silk, jewels, porcelain, indigo, nutmeg, gold, and silver. The ship and the cargo were great prizes. With this success, it was time to head back to England. Drake had poked the Spanish in the eye, and now he had a ship and a cargo that was worth a fortune. The fleet would head home and reach Plymouth on June 26, 1587. In the end, the singeing of the king's beard had been a rousing success. Drake had taken 112,000 pounds of treasure, and that was just the official records. He reportedly took home 20,000 pounds for himself, a staggering sum for the time. But more importantly, it had gained England time. The attack would not stop the Spanish plans, but it would delay them, gaining England an extra year to prepare for the invasion. Back in Spain, Philip fumed, again, as did all of Spain. They had been humiliated repeatedly. Still, Philip was resolute. England was going to feel his wrath. It may not come tomorrow or even next month, but it would happen. Francis Drake returned from singeing the King of Spain's beard, with England readying for war. Ships were being built and outfitted for naval combat, troops were being raised, fortifications constructed, and men were drilling for the expected Spanish invasion. English politicians vowed to fight on land as well as sea. Now, let's not fool ourselves and say that this was all Drake's doing. No, this was decades in the making. But let us make no mistake, war was coming. Now, I don't want to make this podcast about the Spanish Armada, but we do want to spend some time on the event, as it is monumental in Drake's life, as well as in the history of England. At this time, England saw themselves as the bastion of the Reformation, the last great Protestant hope in Europe. Spain represented the papacy. They were a massive, conservative, wealthy behemoth seeking to take down the true church. Both sides would view the coming conflict as Armageddon, a final battle for the soul of Christendom. As for Francis Drake, he was as confident as ever. He had whipped the Spanish at every turn, and he was sure he could do it again. In Spain, Drake's raids had delayed the invasion of England, but not stopped it. In fact, King Philip's resolve to punish the hated island in the north only deepened. So, the Great Armada grew and grew in the latter half of 1587 and into 1588. When all was said and done, the fleet would be massive. There would be 22 galleons, plus more than 100 armed merchant vessels, sporting more than 2,400 artillery pieces. Plus, there were dozens of sport ships. In all, the Armada boasted 25,000 men, including more than 7,000 sailors and over 17,000 soldiers. It was a huge undertaking. The Armada's commander was Alonso Perez de Guzman, the Duke of Medina Sidonia. I will refer to him as Medina Sidonia going forward. The selection of Medina Sidonia was a poor one. The man was a loyal and hard-working aristocrat, but he lacked military and naval experience. Thus, he was often slow to make decisions and lacked imagination. It was also said that he was skeptical about the chances of the Armada's success. In England, Queen Elizabeth would give the command of the country's defenses to Charles Howard, known as Howard of Effingham, not to Francis Drake. This move may seem curious. Howard was a high-ranking nobleman, and while a sailor, he had never seen combat. So why had Drake, the greatest mariner of the age, been passed over for the top command? The reason was, mostly, his commoner background. 
Despite his knighthood, Drake's lowly birth meant that he would never rise to the very top of the pecking order. In some ways, though, this was probably better for Drake. He was not a tactful man, and it is a quality that is often needed when handling large operations. With that in mind, Howard was a fine choice. He was an accomplished politician and respected by men of all classes. Also, Howard would prove to be a good listener and learner, and he was not afraid to delegate authority. This meant that he would actually form a pretty good relationship with Drake, who was named Vice Admiral of the Defense Fleet, the second in command. The sensible and pragmatic Howard knew when to listen to Drake and other men, such as John Hawkins, who was named Rear Admiral of the Fleet. Howard appreciated the energy and innovativeness of Drake, but he also knew when to rein him in when necessary. The English fleet would consist of more than 30 warships and over 150 armed merchant vessels. These ships could not match the tonnage of the Spanish, and the Spanish ships had far, far more soldiers than their English counterparts. But the English did have some distinct and important advantages. The English warships were quicker and more maneuverable. Their ships sported heavier guns, and most importantly, they were better designed for modern naval combat. For thousands of years, naval combat in Europe had not changed very much. While men shot muskets and cannon at their enemies, most combat occurred in close quarters. One ship would come up next to the other, and the men from both ships would proceed to fight it out with cutlasses and clubs. But at this time, a new wave of naval combat was emerging. Now, artillery from one ship would pound another vessel. Instead of oars and boarders, it was now sail and guns, even if no one quite realized it yet. All of this will prove critical in the summer of 1588. So, in Spain, the Great Armada departed on May 18th. The king ordered Medina Sidonia to sail to the Netherlands, where Alexander Farnese, the Duke of Parma, had the Army of Flanders, which consisted of around 20,000 veteran soldiers, waiting. Now, Parma had transports to get the Army of Flanders across the English Channel, but he could not do so without the protection and support of the Armada. If successful, the two sides would connect, and the Spanish would have a seasoned army of more than 35,000 to invade England. The big problem was that exactly how this great hookup was going to happen was kind of fuzzy. No one really knew exactly when and where or how all this would happen. In truth, the ports in the region were not deep water ports, meaning the big galleons and carracks and warships of the Spanish, as well as the English, could not enter. The water was just too shallow for these great vessels. The Spanish basically seemed to have decided to head up to the Netherlands and hope to find a solution. The Spanish Armada reached the English Channel on July 19th, it must have been a stunning sight, this massive train of ships numbering upwards of 150. As for Francis Drake, he strode the deck of Revenge, a 500-ton warship with 40 guns. An initial battle between the English and Spanish took place off Plymouth on July 21st, but not much really came of the affair. The Spanish could never get close enough to board the nimble English ships, and the English vessels never risked getting close and using their bigger guns to their advantage. However, in the aftermath of the fighting, the Spanish did lose two of their large carracks when they collided. One, the Rosario, was captured by Drake, and it turned out to be a great prize. Rosario was one of the fleet's treasure ships. No one knows exactly how much loot was taken, but it is said that up to 50,000 ducats of treasure were on board. The Spanish pressed onward, and in the coming days the two fleets would tempt each other, but nothing major erupted. The Spanish were consistently foiled by the English ship's maneuverability, and the English guns just couldn't do enough damage to threaten their Spanish counterparts. Also, the English were hampered by a lack of gunpowder. The Armada made a move to capture the Isle of Wight, just off the southern coast of England. This would have been an ideal spot to seize, as the waters between the island and the English mainland were well protected. 
Medina Sidonia could have then sent word to Parma and figured out how to get his army across the channel. However, the English came at the Spanish and Medina Sidonia ordered his fleet to sea, not wanting to do battle in unfamiliar shallow waters. The Spanish commander's decision was not really a good one, but no one ever accused the man of being innovative. He had orders from the king to hook up with Parma, and that was what he was going to do. More naval combat occurred, but the results were minimal in nature. The Spanish would eventually anchor off of Calais in France. Here, they sent a message overland to the Duke of Parma in an attempt to coordinate a rendezvous at Dunkirk. As noted, the Spanish were in a difficult situation. The big ships of the Armada couldn't just sail up to the beaches of Dunkirk or wherever and escort the Duke of Parma's ships across the channel. The water was just too shallow near the shore. The Spanish would need to coordinate with Parma's force and determine which of the smaller ships of the Armada would participate in an operation to escort the barges out to deeper waters. This was needed because the Dutch navy was a threat. The Dutch had many smaller armed ships, called flyboats, which controlled the shallow waters. And if the smaller ships of the Armada couldn't provide cover for the troop barges, the latter would be vulnerable to the Dutch. Thus, the Spanish needed to coordinate with each other and determine just how such a thing was going to happen. And that coordination just wasn't going well. So, with the Spanish trying to figure this all out, at midnight on June 28th, with the Spanish ships packed tightly together off of Calais, the English launched eight fire ships at the Armada. These were large ships, packed with explosives and tar and pitch. Ideally, these ships would ram an enemy and explode. Now, the ramming and exploding part didn't happen. However, the fire ships were a terrifying spectacle, and their approach threw the armada into a frenzy. Many ships, afraid of getting stuck in place, cut their anchors to get moving faster. The more disciplined crews stayed put, and used other tactics to divert the fire ships. In the end, most of the fleet scattered, and confusion reigned. Now it was time for Drake and the rest of the English fleet to engage. The Battle of Gravelines was underway. This would prove to be the decisive action of the campaign. The battle went on for eight hours, the English finally retiring as the weather worsened and they ran out of ammunition. During the engagement, the two fleets pounded at each other. The English, because of their maneuverability, mostly avoided taking damage. However, the Spanish took a beating as the English got in closer and let their big guns do their job. The Spanish would end up losing five warships, and many more were damaged. A couple of the lost ships were beached, and hundreds of sailors were captured or slaughtered by the Dutch. In the end, English losses were small, maybe a hundred dead and a few hundred wounded, while the Spanish had between 1,000 and 1,500 dead or captured, and over 600 wounded. But most importantly, in the wake of all the fighting, the Spanish Brain Trust decided that trying to link up with Parma's army was destined for failure, and without Parma's army, an attack on the English mainland was doomed. Thus, Medina Sidonia, the Spanish commander, decided to bring his fleet back to Spain. Drake would write of the battle, quote, God hath given us so good a day. End quote. So the battle against the Spanish Armada was essentially done. In some ways, it seems a bit anticlimactic, as the defeat of the famed Spanish Armada is played up so much in history. But at this point, it wasn't that decisive an affair. It's not as if dozens of ships were at the bottom of the English Channel. The Spanish still had more than 100 vessels and 20,000 plus men. But we have to remember that at this point, the English had accomplished their primary goal. They had driven off the threat before them. That was huge. And for the Armada, they now had to get home, and that was going to be difficult. They had no port or harbor to find safe haven, and the winds, later called Protestant winds, were threatening to drive the ships ashore. And let's not forget, the Spanish ships were battered, plus running low on ammunition and provisions. 
Medina Sidonia decided to ride the winds that were driving the fleet north. This would allow the fleet to sail along the eastern coast of England, and then circle around Scotland and Ireland, and then head home. This is where the tragedy of the affair really took place. The winds driving the Armada were unpredictable and harsh in these regions, and as many of the Spanish vessels had cut their anchors off Calais, they couldn't secure shelter when needed. Also, the storms turned out to be unusually brutal that year. Many ships were driven onto the rocks and beaches. The crews would be at the mercy of the locals, and most were simply executed. Also, as was common in large fleets of this era, illness ran rampant within the ranks of the men. In the end, more than 5,000 men died along the coasts of Ireland and Scotland, their ships shattered on rocks or simply swallowed by the sea. Thousands more would die from illness. When the fleet reached Spain, less than 10,000 men and 67 ships remained, meaning 15,000 men and half the ships had not come home. Spain's king, when informed upon the fate of his great fleet, said, quote, I sent the armada against men, not God's winds and waves, end quote. By the way, typhus would break out in the English fleet shortly after the fighting with the Spanish came to an end. Upwards of six to 8,000 men would die of the disease. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusion supply. So Drake and his fellow mariners had done it. They had rebuffed the heralded Spanish Armada. Drake drew a lot of attention as he was the guy many attributed the victory to, even if others were involved. A medal would later be struck to commemorate the victory. On it were the words, quote, Jehovah blew his winds and they were scattered, end quote. However, while it had been a defeat for Spain, they were not finished. They still had many ships and deep financial resources. With that in mind, Drake and many of his contemporaries urged a quick follow-up attack on the Spanish. They argued that the Spanish Empire was still powerful, but they were disorganized and injured. This was the perfect time to move on them and crush the remnants of the Armada before it could be rebuilt. Queen Elizabeth would agree with this assessment. There would be no better time than now than to strike a decisive blow against Philip. For that, Elizabeth tabbed Drake to lead an English armada, often called the Counter-Armada, against the Spanish. His co-commander would be the respected soldier Sir John Norris, whom Drake had served with many years earlier in Ireland. Norris would command the ground forces, while Drake led the naval contingent. The Counter-Armada would be put together quickly. There were 150 ships. I get a very number regarding personnel, but there were about 5,000 sailors and between 20 and 25,000 troops. The goal was threefold. First, they were to destroy the crippled Spanish fleet. For Elizabeth, nothing mattered more than this, as a decimated Spanish fleet would keep England secure for years. The second goal was to take Dom Antonio to Portugal. Remember Dom Antonio? We mentioned him earlier in this episode. He had been a claimant to the Portuguese throne, and he had been hanging around Europe for years, trying to drum up support from friendly nations to back a scheme against Philip and the Spanish. Dom Antonio, with the support of the English, would thus lead the Portuguese rebellion against Philip. At least that is what they hoped would happen. 
The final part of the plan was to capture the Azores and give England a base of operations in that region. The counter-armada was a massive investment for England, with £80,000 set aside to fund the enterprise. Drake and his fleet would depart on April 17, 1589. However, there were some major issues with regard to the expedition. First, while the English felt speed was essential in order to catch the Spanish unaware and unprepared, the truth is that Spanish spies were everywhere, and they fed information back to Philip and his ministers, alerting them of the expedition. Thus, the Spanish would be ready when the English arrived. Second, in haste, the fleet did not take enough provisions. This meant that Drake would be distracted, often focusing on gathering food and water and other essentials instead of taking the fight to Philip. Third, the fleet did not bring with it siege materials. Often called a siege train or siege engine, this encompasses all the stuff needed to conduct a siege against a modern fortification. This could include, but was not limited to, things such as battering rams, heavy artillery, sappers, ammunition, and catapults. Elizabeth had promised a siege train, but she did not deliver on the promise, and Drake and Norris left without it. This was a terrible decision. Norris and Drake both knew that breaching the thick of formidable walls of the Spanish would be difficult. A siege train was essential to accomplishing such a thing. Finally, the fleet's personnel was substandard. Due to the typhus epidemic, many of the crew were new or lacking in skills, and the army was filled with raw recruits. The first place that the counter-armada came to was the city of Corona in northwest Spain, arriving there on April 24th. Drake had expected to find many of the surviving ships from the Spanish Armada in port, but he would be disappointed. Most of the fleet had gone to other locations. Unfortunately, adverse winds kept Drake and his ships in Corona. In the meantime, the English troops landed and seized the town, murdering 500 civilians who had not been able to flee or reach the city's heavily fortified upper town. The English besieged the upper town, but the fortress withstood repeated attacks, despite the fact that they were outnumbered ten to one. The siege lasted two weeks before being abandoned. Over 1,300 English troops were killed attempting to storm the walls, which never fell. The lack of a siege train had doomed Norris and his troops. The withdrawal was a major morale blow to the English, who departed on May 8th. They had wasted two weeks for minimal gain. And now they had lost over a 1,000 men, and supplies were even more scarce. Also, as was so often the case, disease was beginning to work its way through the English troops and sailors. Next, Drake and Norris decided to abandon hunting down the remnants of the Spanish Armada and head to Portugal. They would take the pretender king, Dom Antonio, and try and stir up the populace against Philip. Norris landed 11,000 men about 40 miles from Lisbon and marched on the Portuguese capital. Drake then took the fleet and the rest of the men and sailed into Lisbon's harbor. It's unlikely that Drake and Norris expected to attack and capture Lisbon, as they had no siege train. Instead, the plan was to hope that the Portuguese would greet the pretender king as a savior and rise up en masse and throw out the Spanish and welcome in the English. Well, that was just not going to happen. Philip had been shoring up his support in the Portuguese nobility for years, and while some people came out to follow the banner of Dom Antonio, there was no spontaneous uprising from the people in the works. Drake did ravage the shipping in the harbor and seize or destroy food and provisions. He even took some treasure from the merchant ships. But the people did not rebel as hoped, and the city was never threatened. Drake and Norris withdrew, but not before illness ravaged the men. By the time Norris rejoined Drake, a third of his force were dead, almost all due to a variety of illnesses. Drake would make a brief attempt to sail to the Azores, but bad winds and growing sick lists made him call off the venture. It was time to go home. The fleet returned to England minus 40 ships, most lost due to bad weather, but some from combat. Between ten and 15,000 men would die, 
mainly from illness, which had been devastating. One ship reported only three of their 300 men on board had avoided getting sick. In that same ship, 114 of the 300 would die. Only 18 men were listed as fit for duty when they landed in England. The whole thing was a disaster, and it was Francis Drake's first real defeat. The English had caused some chaos, but on all of their goals, they had failed. The surviving ships of the Spanish Armada had mostly been untouched. Portugal had not risen in rebellion, and the Azores were still in the possession of Spain. The disaster was almost on the same scale as Spain's attempt to attack England the year before, but not quite. The truth is that Drake had made many mistakes in the campaign. He had too many inexperienced men and volunteers, not enough supplies, no siege train, and once he had reached Spain, he had been slow to act, something very uncharacteristic of him. Some whispered that the great admiral had lost his edge. So, with the defeat of the counter-armada, the English, including Francis Drake, still obsessed about the might and intentions of Philip in Spain. Of course, England could breathe a lot easier after the victory over the armada, knowing that they had punched Philip squarely in the nose. But Philip would never lose his desire to defeat England. In the aftermath of the counter-armada, Francis Drake would stay active. He was a member of Parliament, and he had many other roles in national as well as local government. He would do such things as advocate for better funding of naval projects, including increased pay for sailors. Also, in 1590, Drake, along with Lord Howard of Effingham, Sir John Hawkins, and other notable mariners, founded the first charity to help aged, sick, and disabled mariners and their families. It is a charity that still exists to this day. Also during these years, Drake sat for several portraits, two of which still exist. Still, no matter what Drake was up to, he never forgot about Philip and Spain. As early as 1593, Drake began to make preparations for yet another expedition to the Americas. His goal was to strike Panama, the heart of the treasure route. This effort would come to reality in 1595, when Elizabeth approved the expedition. It would consist of 27 ships, including six from the Queen, as well as 1,500 mariners and 1,000 soldiers. The latter were under the command of Sir Thomas Baskerville. Drake would co-command the expedition with his old comrade, John Hawkins. At this time, Hawkins would have been in his early 60s, while Drake was 55. Neither man was as sharp or full of energy as they had been in the past. And the expedition will reflect that when a lack of urgency is on display throughout. Drake and Hawkins and the fleet left England on September 15, 1595. At this point, Drake and Hawkins needed speed, so they could fall on the Spanish ports in the Caribbean unawares. However, the fleet plotted forward instead of seizing the moment. Thus, word of Drake's arrival would reach the Caribbean well before the English fleet. The expedition first diverted to the Canary Islands for water and supplies, and busied themselves trying to take the port of Las Palmas, an action that would be met with failure. The English fleet would finally reach the Caribbean in late October. Here they would tarry at Guadalupe while they refitted their ships, then make for Puerto Rico. Then, on November 12th, the fleet's co-commander, John Hawkins, died of an illness. He was 62 or 63 at the time of his death, and would be buried at sea. Despite the death of Hawkins, Drake moved forward with his plans to take the city of San Juan. However, the city was ready for Drake and the English, so it was not going to be easy. Drake attempted to attack by sea on the night of November 13th-14th. The English would burn some Spanish ships, but they would be repulsed by the heavy guns of the port's fortress. In the actions leading up to the engagement, Drake would almost be killed when a shot from the city's defenders blasted the dining area while he ate, killing several men. Drake had his seat blasted from under him. After being thwarted by the defenders of San Juan, Drake decided it wasn't worth the hassle. He then turned his sights on Panama. The fleet would start by capturing the town of Rio de la Hacha, east of Cartagena. 
The town's residents had fled without a fight, leaving the English with nothing to show for their efforts. Drake would reach Nombre de Dios on December 27th. This was the place Drake had made his mark 20 years before with his daring raids on the town and the treasure caravan. However, this time there would be nothing for him. The Spanish were well aware of his approach, and they had abandoned the town and taken anything of value. Drake then decided to strike out across the Isthmus at Panama City. This would be a big prize. For this, he sent 800 men overland under Sir Thomas Baskerville. It was the dry season, so what could go wrong? Well, dry season doesn't mean there won't be rain, and that's what did happen. Baskerville's men would slog west over the mountains in miserable conditions. Then, about halfway across the isthmus, Baskerville ran into a hastily erected fortification put up across the road. The Spanish only had about 120 men, but when the English attacked, they cut them down, killing between 60 and 70. On January 2, 1596, Baskerville decided to turn back. He feared that even if he overcame the Spanish fortification, there would only be more such defenses waiting for him as he approached Panama City. Upon Baskerville's return, Drake burned Nombre de Dios and loaded his men back on the ships and headed for Nicaragua. On the way, the fleet would spend 13 days off an island waiting for favorable winds. And it is here that Francis Drake's legendary luck would run out. Illness, always an issue, was running through the ranks of the fleet. And unlike so many other voyages, Drake could not avoid it. He became sick and was confined to his cabin, suffering from dysentery. At this point, Drake knew the end was coming. He dictated his will, naming his brother Thomas as his executor. He also distributed gifts to his servants. As he had no children, much of his estate would go to his wife. On January 28, 1596, at 4 a.m., Sir Francis Drake, the greatest mariner of his age, died. He was about 55 years old. For his funeral, per his request, Drake was dressed in full armor. He was buried at sea in a sealed, lead-lined coffin near Portobello, Panama. Divers have searched for the coffin many times, but it has never been found. The fleet, under Baskerville, would head back to England. The expedition had cost England the lives of her two most famous mariners. So that is the life of English explorer Francis Drake. I hope you have enjoyed this tale. Now, let us take a look at Drake and his legacy. We will start by talking a bit about the people and events who had been so important to Drake's life. First, there was King Philip II of Spain. Upon hearing of Drake's demise, a sick King Philip, he was suffering from cancer, reportedly said, quote, It is good news, and now I will get well. End quote. Philip would send two more armadas against England, one in 1596 and another in 1597. Neither would succeed. He would die in 1598 and be succeeded by his 20-year-old son, Philip III. The second and most important person in the life of Francis Drake was Queen Elizabeth. The two had been each other's greatest supporters. Elizabeth has been judged, arguably, the greatest monarch in English history. Not a small thing. She, with the help of Drake, guided England through a long and precarious time. In the end, her nation would emerge as a rising world power. Elizabeth would die in 1603 at the age of 69. She was succeeded by James I, son of Mary, Queen of Scots. The English-Spanish conflict, which had been an undeclared war much of Drake's life, would be resolved in 1604 with the Treaty of London. England would be forced to abandon the Netherlands, but they would secure a peace that would last for more than 20 years. And that leaves us with Francis Drake. It is quite a legacy. Drake had begun life as a simple sailor, and had risen as high as any commoner could have imagined. He had become rich and powerful and successful. In his time, Drake reportedly captured and destroyed upwards of 500 ships and sacked dozens of towns. 
He had sailed around the world, encountered lands no European had ever visited, and had defeated the Spanish in one of the most critical naval engagements in English history. It had made him hated in Spain and beloved in England. That does not mean we can forget Drake's faults or mistakes. He was a headstrong and arrogant man, his inability to work with others threatening his mission on several occasions. And let's face it, much of the time he was a glorified pirate, causing the deaths of many, many men, both in Europe, Africa, Asia, and the New World. He had even taken part in some early slave trading ventures, although they were not his expeditions. Still, there were many, many accomplishments. His actions as a privateer practically started an industry in the New World, and his tactics and strategies would be studied and copied for centuries. As a ship captain, he helped transform naval power into something very new. As we said earlier, it is this move from oars and borders to sail and guns. He had helped innovate and implement that change. It would put England on a path to becoming the world's dominant sea power. In time, Drake's stature would diminish in the eyes of some people. While always loved in England, some saw him as little more than a pirate. But that's not being particularly far-sighted. He was much more than that. To me, he was a man of boundless energy and action. He had a boldness and an audacity that was needed for the difficult times in which he lived. This audaciousness was probably his defining trait. He imagined things others dared not, and then he tried them. Time and time again, he did what most thought impossible. He identified the weaknesses of his opponents and exploited them. It would cost the Spanish dearly for nearly 20 years. Over the years, Drake, as well as many other explorers, have been heavily romanticized. He would have many biographies written on him, most focusing on his daredevil ways and actions, which, to be honest, is not that far from what we have done in this podcast. In England, this made Drake an icon. To this day, he is a hero, the man who circumnavigated the world, the man who repelled the Spanish Armada, the man who helped save the Protestant Church in England, the man who punched England's greatest enemy in the nose repeatedly. Okay, that's all an exaggeration, but there are many elements of truth to the whole thing. So, we have talked a lot about Drake's legacy, but there are a few more things I want to mention. First, as noted in an earlier episode, there is a replica of Drake's ship in London that sailed around the world, Goldenhind. You can go visit that. Second, his name is everywhere in England. There are schools and hotels and ships and roads and shopping centers named after the guy. You'll find several statues of Drake in England, including one in Devon. And the man's name is not just limited to his homeland. In California, there's Drake's Bay. In British Columbia, there's Mount Sir Francis Drake. In popular culture, you also find Drake referenced in countless songs, paintings, poems, books, movies, and television shows. One of my favorite all-time movies is The Seahawk, a 1940 film starring Errol Flynn. The film is a great adventure flick, with Flynn playing a character loosely based on Drake. He even gets to go and raid the Spanish treasure caravan in Panama. I highly recommend it. And it's not just in movies and TV and songs and poems that Drake's name and life are referenced in. One of the most successful video games of recent years is the Uncharted series. In it, you play a descendant of Francis Drake, Nathan Drake, a treasure hunter who journeys around the world trying to uncover various historic mysteries. I have not played it, but my college-age son loves the series. So there's that. Also, there is a board game called Francis Drake. In it, you get to organize expeditions to the New World, attacking Spanish cities and treasure fleets. If you like complex board games, it is fantastic. So that is it, the life and legacy of Francis Drake. I have posted a bunch of images of paintings and statues and engravings of Drake and his exploits on our website, explorerspodcast.com. Check them out if you want. There are some cool ones. I hope you've enjoyed this six-part series on Francis Drake. 
This series was, to be honest, a little different than many of our other series, as Drake was influential in so many ways outside of his explorations. I try not to get too caught up in the fighting and so forth, but it's hard not to cover that stuff when dealing with someone like Francis Drake. Anyhow, as I said, I hope you enjoyed it all. Thank you again for listening. I will see you next time.